Man, look at all this rad loot. Yeah, this is a pretty neat train. We should come back again someday. Well, what do you mean? We just started only like three hours ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm just getting a little bored is all. All these cars and monsters are kind of all the same. It's a little boring. Oh, come on, it's fun. Just one more car, come on. Come on, man, come on. All right, just one more. Ah, <laughs> yes. <sighs> podcast i am nicholas and i'm lauren and today we are going to again talk about DD. and when i say again i mean because there is a lost episode <laughs> um this and by very lost- dungeons and dragons <laughs> <laughs> the by lost my- episodes of furidashi <laughs> yeah I, by that i mean um there was an episode that we in fact did record in fact it was a pretty good episode but my audio was atrocious and so as i am wont to do i say this is the universe right telling us that this is kismet we were not supposed to record that DD episode we are supposed to record this one whatever yes. it may be <laughs> whatever whatever yeah because actually this one is less planned than the other than the other one was but i th- i mean i felt it would be a pretty good follow-up to one the um Takeshi and Hiroshi chill rant that I recorded two weeks ago and also then the discussion that we had last time about sort of like self-insertion and sort of like first-person objectivity versus first-person subjectivity Um, because well once again this is so from my perspective I'm going to be talking about it in terms of like the the game I'm currently running with my wife and daughter so the obvious connection with the, the Takeshi and Hiroshi situation and Lauren you have been off and on working on your own homebrew Originally from 3.5, right? It was originally 3.5 and heavily modified 3.5. This was back when 5 didn't exist. Yeah. This was also back when Pathfinder just came out. So this is around D&D 4. And D&D 4 was changed to very much a video game style of play. Yeah. And I say that because it was very... It was actually more mechanics driven than D&D 3.5, which as you've seen those character sheets feels very mechanics driven. Yeah. I'm also participating in a Dungeons of Dragons campaign right now uh, on a weekly or every other week basis, depending on our schedules, because we're all game developers. And that one is takes place in Neverwinter. My setting is kind of a non-setting. In fact, this is the thing that I often do with new players, because I have to. sometimes I have to sort of feel them out. Like the world that I'm going to be constructing is sort of vaguely Avatar, but it's only vaguely Avatar in the sense that my wife wanted to play um, an elemental monk. And so, and a lot of the elemental monk abilities are clearly Avatar ripoffs if you you read them. Like one of them is literally called Water Whip. Like that's yeah. taken, and it's taken, and like, it's can like she a- bloodbend? That's the question. <laughs> it would be cool to like try and homebrew something like bloodbending, but that's not, but also monks aren't 
really spell casters like even when they can cast spells they're pretty limited in terms of like, advanced, class, advanced class advanced class maybe necro no, monks there's no there's gonna be no prestige classes none of that we're not doing any of that stuff especially since oh, you know one of the boo. people i have playing is completely new and wanted to play a war domain cleric that's my daughter and so yeah no so that's and that's his daughter would be a great war domain cleric for any D D nerds out there oh yeah i think she's actually not liking it i think she didn't realize what it what it entailed because she keeps trying to cast she she, she keeps trying to be primarily a spellcaster, and i'm like but you realize that you you chose a version of cleric that is more like melee fighting focused like i the, see the, the, the initial abilities you get like are all about like either like adding bonuses to your melee attack rolls or like you might have to just homebrew it for her to be honest possibly or just that's like, what i found with new yeah. players is that i had a group of seven of my friends not including myself uh and one other dungeon master who said he would co-dm with me which is how my homebrew started and we had to find a setting in a world and mechanics that would have support a seven person dungeons and dragons campaign around the table yeah but we ended is, up splitting up the groups to be fair um but it was all self-taught or self-split yeah. we were like guys choose a direction to fight this battle <clears throat> well, for, well for me that's why i think it actually so when i run a table and by run a table i mean like i am the one who is the game master of the things that are happening yeah uh, so, so when we talk about the table right we are talking about the physical space that could now be zoom right um yeah. for those of us on multiple coastlines or like locations around the world the table is the play space yeah as a video game say the world right so on the table means stuff that happens on the table yeah. or around the table right yeah it's the theater of the mind and when you run the table running the game because it's a tabletop game um, yeah this is different than board games where the board game is the game master, just so that we yeah. can clarify because a board game could be a tabletop game, but it is very, very different than a, a human being, right? Running the table. Although there are companies like um, Asmodee that are starting to make games that a lot of games that actually require like one person to fu essentially function as a game master. Yeah. And there's also board. Mansions yeah. of Madness, which is like half app DM, half Video game, okay, yeah. So tabletop. in the in the first version of that game, one like when the the analog the original analog version of Mansions of Madness, you did actually have to have someone yeah. GM it. But now you can, yeah, as you said, you can do. But it now it's now it's the yeah. Okay, so the reason why I construct a world that is kind of non-determinate is as often with new players, like they they genuinely don't know what they're doing, and you kind of have to feel them out, and you kind of have to figure out like what it is that they want to try to achieve. And in order to invite them in and like make a lot of the complex mechanics of DE less hostile, is to sort of construct a world around the way they're playing rather than have a fully formed world in which that character is dropped. I mean, that's the more typical way of playing DD is that sort of like you have the megalomaniacal DM who is like, oh, I have this entire world figured out in my brain and all these branching paths and all these things that I'm going to throw at them. And I think that works for experienced players because oftentimes experienced players want to essentially play that world. Like they want to try and figure that world out. But if you have someone who is very uncomfortable with just the character and their mechanics, it's helpful in my mind, especially like, because I have, I have actually run tables with kids before. It's helpful to have at, 
available to you the ability to create a world for them. And so the reason why I think this links back to what I said on my, you know, my lonesome about Takeshi and Hiroshi is because um, Takeshi begins the game with like his own preconception of what he wants his game to be. But then when his kid brother starts playing it, he realizes like, no, actually, I've got to redesign these levels so as to be better suited for my kid brother. So that way he is both challenged, but also that it's not too challenging that he just like rage quits out of it. Right. And that's exactly what got me directly into, honestly, my grad school program was the fact that I ran this homebrew campaign and I understood the fundamental truth of game development is that it's not about the level or the art or the animation or the game, right, that you are making until you get it into a user or a player's hands and they go, I don't understand. This isn't fun. What do you mean I have to like wait until level three? What's going on? Where am I going? I mean, like, <laughs> like it's just horrible or better or worse, right? Is they put it in your hands and suddenly they can't play it because it's too difficult. It's too confusing. They're stuck in a room and they don't realize they can open the door. They yeah. can't see the door, even though you've put literal spotlights on the door. They just thought it was a stage because the spotlights obviously are only on stages. Yeah. Like th this has happened to me. Mm hmm. Right. And so playing Dungeons and Dragons and also running the table was apparently like this very, I didn't think of it as anything special because I'm a storyteller. Yeah. So I'm like telling stories is what I do. This isn't special, but that was actually really fundamental of game development. And so yeah. Takeshi and Hiroshi, right. When you have his younger brother needing is like, I, I don't like these. And you're like, crap. And you go back to the drawing board. You do that in game dev so often yeah. and you don't do it live. So to do it around the table, right, for your players, yeah. I really, really relate to that because that's kind of my methodology is that you have to, right, tailor the experience to your players if they're not getting it or they're not having fun. Well, also because, especially within the world of not just D&D, &D, but like tabletop role-playing in general, um, game masters slash dungeon masters are actually pretty rare. Like a lot of people have a hard time getting a game started precisely for lack of a DM. And one of the reasons for this is because also often a lot of the work, <laughs> like the actual work of the game yeah. falls on the DM. And it takes a particularly, well, it takes people like us, people who like write constantly, people who are thinking constantly, people who like produce just tons and tons of material, much of which never gets used in any way, shape or form. And in many ways, being a DM is like that. Like you have to have certain ideas of where things could go. I mean, one of the, one of the most like common strategies that you employ as a dungeon master in a game is you sort of, you create a crisis moment and you have to be aware of all the possible ways in which your players could react. So in many ways you have to have something we're prepared. Not talking... for... Yeah. Sorry. Go. Yeah. No. And you have to have something, you were going to say you have to have something prepared for each of them. Yeah. However, there are the ways that you don't even think about. Exactly. Yes. So it doesn't, at the end of the day, my style of dungeon mastering right, is actually, and I'll also say game mastery, because dungeon master is actually a trademarked registered concept, yes. specifically to Wizards of the Coast. So game mastering, boo, boo. <laughs> so game mastering is something that, like, that's my style. My style is honestly, at the end of the day, like, I can run a better session if it's impromptu, and I have nothing prepared, because yeah. I have actually pre-prepared so much about the world and the lore. Yeah. So I will say where you dropped your characters into a like kind of a a, a fuzzy setting. Yeah. 
I think maybe from a player's perspective, I start off that way, but I actually really encourage my players to be very proactive and like reading the world. And that's why I, yeah. I focus on the world setting so much is that I'm like, Hey, this is the world. This is the world setting, etc. And in this talk now, I realize like I didn't actually put a very key thing in my beginner's guide and I'm, I'm going to take a note <laughs> so that I do that. Well, so and the other, no, but you're right. The, the, your players will reveal to th things to you that you never even thought possible. And so one of the things that I had to deal with right away, especially with, in terms of dealing with my daughter's gameplay, is that she didn't want to kill things at all. And, you know, there is a way to do non-lethal damage in D&D, in &D, but also, like, constructing a world in which, like, your player characters are primarily trying to, like, knock out humanoid opponents, tie them up, you know, bring them to jail. Like, oftentimes it's easier to create a kind of what is in um, the lingo referred to as like a murder hobo situation where essentially your, your group of players are ones who like they kill something and then move on to the next thing and then kill something and then move on to the next thing and kill something and move on to the next thing. I really like that you call them murder hobos. But, no, that's, that, that's, that's a term that's existed for a while. No, I, I, I I've actually, <laughs> I'm sure I've heard of it. It's just like, that's great. <laughs> well, I mean, cause it, it's, it's, it's very descriptive. Like it, it sort of describes what's going on. Well, it, and it's interesting. Cause like you're talking about human opponents. Right. Well, it's not it's also, also like there are monsters that she doesn't want to kill too. So like it's bless it's, her. It's it's she's she's a um my daughter is uh she's a I don't know, she's a great person, but also at the same time, like she the way she sees like the world of fantasy because the thing is she, she's also played of the people in my house, she's played far more video games than literally everybody else, including me. Like she plays them constantly, and she also plays a far wider variety of video games than either she, either I or my wife do. And so she has experienced plenty of games in which, like, you're supposed to like kill the baddies and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like she's never experienced that before. However, for some reason, when she has inserted herself into a character, and it's not just that, but also the character that she has inserted herself into is a character she created like art for and a backstory for long before this D&D &D game came into existence. So she has preconceptions about who this character is, like morally and ethically and on, you know, the, the full gamut. Like it's a fully fleshed out person. And so, well, it's not, it's actually not a person. It's a... I understand you know. what you're saying though, is that when you self-insert into a Dungeons and Dragons, uh, or any sort of uh, um, tabletop game, role-playing game, yeah. right? It could be Vampire the Masquerade. You self-insert as that vampire, right? To continue the vampire trend that I'm doing. Yeah. And <laughs> so when so you're, you... You're <laughs> if you're playing Edward in Vampire the Masquerade. <laughs> oh, God, no. Let's be Lestat. Thank you. Uh, yeah, okay. Right? But when you're playing Vampire the Masquerade, a lot of the times you... I mean, there is the tabletop game. But honestly, you go to a masquerade session. It's just an actual, like, group of humans sitting on chairs, like almost in like a circle like drinking or like eating yeah. you know the crumpets or whatever and just being like oh we're like obviously just dancing in this ball and you're all just like sitting on the floor talking yeah. like that's really it yeah and i think that when you self-insert though and you have those self-preconceived notions that preconception comes through immediately right to the people hosting or the people running the game yeah. because they'll go this person is about to get their um Good Lord, I need to say, a, I need a mature way of, uh, an unmature way of saying this, like a <laughs> rating PG. Um, 
they're about to get their butt whooped. There we go. That's the, <laughs> like, I can't. Just say ass kicked. It's fine. I can't even. No, I was going to, they're going to get their ass handed to them. Yeah. Especially like if they're in a session where you're younger and you're playing, you have, especially younger people when they come in with that, I'm the power player. This is my yeah. power fantasy. I'm Edward. I need to be in this moment. I'm Lestat, right? Yeah. Or like they come to D&D &D and they're like, I'm the broody rogue. Don't you know my backstory where both my parents were killed in an alley and I need to get revenge on whoever did it. Um, yeah, that's Batman. Yeah. But like, yeah, like you're playing Batman and you have that preconceived notion. Well, suddenly, right? Someone comes at you and goes, I lived in the darkness. I was the darkness, right? And then you're like, oh, wait, that's me. Oh, but actually, I'm not in the darkness. <laughs> oh, you're right. You got it. You have to cover your face. Oh, you're in the darkness. <laughs> I can't even do it. I can't. I'm like, I'm the darkness. Help me. Why is your bird voice so inapplicable? Okay. Uh, the point being though, is you're, I hope you're laughing with us because the point being is that you self-insert into these really powerful characters, right? Into her, uh, this is her powerful character, right? This is her moment. And you not only as her yeah. DM, but as her father, right? Have to yes. either. Yeah. So, so that, that's, choice, an, right? that's an important aspect right there, because the thing is like, I'm also not running a table for a bunch of randos that I sort of vaguely know, or like, you know, I'm friends with one of them, but the others I'm not really that familiar with. Like, this is my family. <laughs> like this, 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 this is a person that I have known literally their entire life from like the moment of conception to now. <laughs> like, yeah. so I can't kill her character at all like in many ways it's a self it's a self-imposition like i feel like i'm not allowed to kill her character or put her character in like so here's something that happened first session we they did the classic like you know you're on a cart you arrive in town you're stopping at a tavern and here's the here's the scenario that i set up like there was this family that was you know part of another caravan that was being intimidated by literally the by a thug in fact, if you look in the the monster manual, it's literally thug that's there, um, which is not a particularly powerful. Um, it's a fighter essentially. It's like a reskinned fighter. Um, and my my daughter's character and she saw this happening and immediately attacked this guy. And I'm like, this guy is going to kill her. <laughs> and so, right, yeah. so, so literally in that moment, I invented another character who was sitting in the same tavern who was essentially like um i don't know you, you've seen like old like wuxia films like the sort of like the old like hermit like kung fu guy who has like the long flowy beard that they sort of is constantly yeah, yeah. playing with like big fu manchu beard um i literally invented this character out of thin air to intervene and like protect my my daughter's character because she literally was about to get killed yeah, honestly, um, that just sounds like that needs to, needs to be a home like rule set because I have a lot of home rules yeah. that I don't honestly know that I have mm -hmm. until I start playing. But I don't kill my players' characters unless they're asking for it, right? And yeah. this is coming from even if it's my sister who I've known her her whole life because she is right younger than me. Yeah. But that's different than if it was say my like child who I'm actually you know responsible for teaching good moral ethics. <laughs> Um, I'm, I guess as an older sister, I was responsible for that for my sis, younger sister, but not to the extent of a parent, right? There's that, there's that power dynamic, yeah. right? Cause you could ground them, right? Yeah. So you don't want to like that to them is right. The, the worst. So now you're going to kill their self insert character is like that. That's killing them. 
because I adopted this like self-imposed restriction on me that I wasn't going to kill like this is now a recurring character in our campaign this character I literally created it was just a random like fifth level monk from like what I could remember of like fifth level monk skills and because like I had to think to myself like okay like who is somebody that could intervene and could immediately stun this guy like okay a monk stunning strike so literally like he intervenes like and it almost didn't work like the, the the thug almost saved but then at least he would be attacking this monk guy and then instead of my my daughter but no he stunned him and then that opened up sort of an rp session but then also because my wife's character was also a monk it meant that like he could then become a kind of like i don't know mentor for her character and this is literally and so that's this is what we were talking about earlier like these things where like your players will do things that you do not anticipate and quite often the things that you do in reaction to them to try and like save the situation then become the really sort of powerful moments in, in your game. And so to take this back to the realm of game design and sort of the, the point that I was trying to make about Takeshi and Hiroshi, this idea that like, if you cultivate your players, if you care for your players, because that's the thing is that like, in doing this for my daughter, I'm sort of creating the space in which she can grow and learn in that game and by creating that for her i also like fundamentally improved my abilities as a dm to sort of like construct a world and sort of like a situation for them to play in and the problem that i often see with game developers is sort of like they become detached from that relationship yeah. no i absolutely agree with you i think that when you're making a game and detachment is hard too, right? Yeah. And I, I would say detachment is hard because you're get very attached to maybe a feature that you're working on and then suddenly that feature is yeah. cut. You're very attached to the player and maybe the user profile, but suddenly, you know, everyone on the team or maybe the game director or the creative director, like whatever that title is. Yeah. And I, I say title, but I truly mean like the decision maker, the one who actually has the true high level vision and picture starts to change that vision. And so suddenly what you were attached to in the player profile that you really liked, and most generally as someone maybe that's exactly like you, you're now making yeah. a game for someone who isn't like you at all, yeah. right? And now you're suddenly having to cult cultivate and care about someone you yeah. would never care about, exactly. right? And this is especially true if you're say working on a single player title or a multiplayer title and you, you have to almost detach if you're like, I only play single player, high intensity, high action narratives like Tomb Raider or like Uncharted. I only play these games. I only ever want to play these games. These are the games that I want to make because that's yeah. my portfolio, right? Like yeah. that's my repertoire. On the other hand, right, you'll be like, oh, these are the multiplayer co-op games. Like I only work in MMOs. I only ever want to do MMOs, right? Yeah. And that's why we as game developers say you need to play a lot of games is not so much because we think that playing like, and to be fair, like playing games is the be and end all of it, like just play a lot. It's that you need to understand the people, right? That you are going to create a game for, yeah, whether exactly. it be right that Tomb Raider or whether it's that, um, uh, I literally blinked on the name for some reason. So I, I got another thought, but World of Warcraft, right? Whether it's yeah. World of Warcraft or League of Legends, right? Like it's yeah. a totally different game. Yeah. You need to have at least experienced it a little bit. And honestly, if you haven't, just watch people play that really, really love it and watch how they react to it, right? Because it's that sentimentality. It's that emotional connection they're getting for. But I really do think yeah. that detachment is can be hard, but it is also very easy for developers when suddenly you realize the thing you've been cultivating 
is wasted, right? Work. And now you have to cultivate a totally different relationship with other people. Well, in many ways, it's it's almost imperative to then develop a different kind of mindset about it. Because the thing is, it's very easy to, and this is not exclusive to video game design. This is in any creative form in existence. In fact, um, in or the perhaps, perhaps just to interject very quickly, is any creative performance um, that is a performance in that you are doing something for someone else. So a graphic designer, someone who makes logos is easy. But I would say that if you're creating an art piece for yourself, right, that's the intent that yourself, right, is your customer. You are doing art for you. I would disagree I was... because I think there there is a thing that they that is often like an in art instruction. They they call it becoming too precious. It's this idea in which like the thing that you're creating, regardless of whether it's for somebody else or for yourself, becomes overworked precisely because you become too insular about it. And so the thing, in other words, it becomes the more it is about you, and the more you sort of become not just like invested in terms of time, but also emotionally invested in the thing that you're working on. Like I see you, what you're you, saying. You start to miss things that even later you will be like, oh, why did I do that? And I so, understand. I understand. Yeah. So please continue on your point. Yeah. I don't so, disagree with that. Yeah. I don't fully agree with the first way that you said it, but let's yeah. keep going. No, 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 you're right. Like, I think that this formulation is is actually somewhat better because the thing is, like getting rid of that preciousness is really important. One, because as, as I noted in my chill rant, like nearly all game design, especially in the modern world is collective labor. Like you have to be able to do this alongside other people. And so if you think about this sort of like, let's say a more curatorial way of looking at game design, in other words, instead of thinking about like, what kinds of ideas and things and like say objects or levels or whatever it is that you happen to be working on, instead of me trying to sort of like focus on and like cultivate that, if you alternate, your, if you sort of shift your focus to like, who am I doing this for? Because it could be for yourself. It could be for somebody else. It could be for your family. It could be for like a broader audience. It could be for like, you know, say greater representation of like marginalized communities. Like if you're doing it for someone else, this is the easiest way to explain it. Then in many ways, you don't feel as precious about the specific things that you do. It is actually easier to get over them because you're keeping the focus on like who it is that you're trying to communicate to and what it is that you're trying to communicate to them. Yeah, and this is actually really good for a dungeon master or the D&D plus like game development, right? Is that because in dungeon mastering, you are creating an experience. And if you just think about the story you've designed and you want a tale, this will create something we call the on-rails experience, yep. right? That's the Uncharted. That's the Tomb Raider. Yep. There is a very directed story that you are going to get through. And by golly, if you have to look up how to solve the color puzzle, you're going to look it up so you can get through it, right? Yeah. Versus something that is not designer-driven, right, is a little bit more player-driven. And while technically it's linear, Journey is a lot more of a player-driven design because you, they don't really tell you what to do or, or where to go you have to experience it through playing the game yeah and while i would say skyrim would fit maybe that like dungeon master list like sandboxy environment you could also say minecraft journey is a really great example of what a dungeon crawling experience is kind of about in that you are 
say like the wordless DM, so to speak, but you're kind of just guiding players through this experience. And the player is just engaging with that world. And then how that world reacts to you is actually what determines your next course of action. Yeah. Right. And when the world gets more confined and smaller and you see the path of you as up ahead because your DM says there's a staircase or journey says, this is the staircase. It changes the camera angle on you. You now realize this is where you need to go. Yeah. And in game development, right? So outside of the game, your developing journey, if they had tried to make this game for players that very specifically wanted that Tomb Raider experience, they would not have made the decisions that they did. Right. And as game developers, you need to have that healthy detachment from, say, your individual features, but also need to still be very cognizant because even myself as a game designer, I play those single player like games or when I play an MMO, I'm used to that questing behavior. But, you know, if you look at the multiplayer titles that I've worked on, obviously they were not of that, like they're not of that vein. They're actually a much more cooperative or uh, experience. Well, yeah, because there's, I mean... And that's very different. It's just very different to design that. I have to be cognizant that even if I say something, thinking it will work in a multiplayer space. Yeah. Right? Like on Dungeon Defenders 2. Like, I know what tower defense is. I know, right, working on that title that I was like, hey, we need to put more story in these veins. Yeah. Because of the person that I am and because of what my focus is on, which is the personal experience of our players, it will still come across as if I'm looking at one player versus, right, the four that we had in the same way it was true with Avengers. And in many ways, you can talk about the same phenomenon, like the good version and bad version, because railroading is the sort of the bad version, because it definitely feels like you're forcing your players to do something regardless of what their opinions about I will say that railroading in Dungeons and D&D specifically, because if you are playing a Tomb Raider because you want to have that experience, being on rails isn't necessarily... Because I think another way of thinking of it is not actually railing, but is more like scaffolding. In other words, you're creating a sort of specific structure that sort of supports a particular Mm -hmm. framework. However... Like, I mean, to use an example of, say, like, you know, Shadow of the Tomb Raider or any, any of the, like, the, the most recent Tomb Raider games. Right, yeah. Then, even within the sort of, like, fairly straight linear progression, like, there is still wiggle room in there. Whereas whereas yes. railroading is is literally, like, you know, so, like, you know, you, you throw your character into a room and there is, like, you know, say a demon that they have to fight. It's like, I am a demon. And then, you know, your characters are like, okay, actually... No, we don't think we can fight this demon, so we're going to try and teleport out. And you're like, and then the DM goes like, "No, this is a special room that you can't teleport out of." And they're like, "Okay." So like, "Okay, well then what we're going to tr- we're going to try and banish the demon." Like, "No, the demon can't be banished." It's like if like if you like you keep trying if you keep putting things in your player's way that sort of forces them You know what? That's it. Yeah. That that sort of prevents them from doing No, I was going to say yeah. that is perfect. Yeah. Like that's No, real, I I hate that, sorry. Yeah. That's railroading. <laughs> <laughs> so that's definitely yeah that is yeah. a great example i'm sorry that i talked over it but it's like no, it's fine. that's devil may cry devil mm-hmm. may cry is that game you have to yeah. you go into that experience and you're gonna be on rails but you're right in uncharted and in tomb raider there is still that flexibility of that slightly rp element yes. where you have the hub world and they're like okay now you can start crafting now you can start hunting for um 
like all the the deer or like the the whatever you need you can yeah. start realizing you can't kill the chickens in the forest like this makes no sense i need feathers why can't i get feathers from chickens right and then there's that interplay where yeah. you're like oh i'm fighting because i've been railroaded against the chicken they are not killable but i can kill all the hawks yeah because the thing is like there is a way to do linear progression in you know narrative game design where you're still giving at least the illusion of choice like even if like the choices are pretty limited then then you're at least giving your player some sense of like that self-insertion no exactly and i yeah. think that that's where like the self-insertion comes when we look at the bioware genre of games is that you have this illusion of choice in that it's just you're doing an emotion when there actually is a choice point that choice point is usually binary and it's presented to you but it eventually right meets up with the actual like trunk of the tree so to yeah. speak Right. And I do think that in other games, right, like in Skyrim, it also has linearity, but a lot of the stories come from like the side quests and the nonlinearity, but its story is in, indefinitely linear. Right. Yeah. We don't really actually see nonlinear stories in, in games necessarily, because even in branching, like it's just a measure of content. Right. Yeah. You could branch infinitum, uh, I think something like in Disco Elysium, but then you there the amount of content in that game. Right. I don't think. Yeah has hasn't necessarily been in a triple a title in a while but in others yeah. right non-linear progression doesn't necessarily mean unlinear yeah right they they're and especially when you're dungeon mastering like you're saying you made that monk he's now a mentor and he he will reoccur but also the non-linearity of your gameplay is it's still chosen right by what your daughter and where she wants to go next yeah right yeah well, and also, so going back to that specific game, it's like the thing is, in many ways, my my players are kind of on a linear path. It's 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 one that sort of I have vaguely in my head. And if they choose, but the, but the difference is, is that and I think this is really sort of the important lesson to sort of bring everything back together is that when it's clear that your players want something else when they want to deviate to create the means in which they can deviate in other words if you have a fairly clear path in mind and they come up against an obstacle and they want to deal with it in a way that's different from what you want them to do that's harder to do with a video game precisely because it's pre-programmed for the most part i mean you can have certain like algorithmic functions you can have certain like variable systems but that's still going to be limited I mean, one of the advantages of a tabletop role-playing game is that, like, yeah, you could literally can invent an, an entirely new path out of thin air in the moment. Right, it's and that's the theater of the mind. Yeah, it's not always a great idea to do that because you'll probably run, run into problems later on and not remembering the thing that you made up. However, like, th there's still, there still is a core lesson there. And it, it's the same as the lesson in Takeshi and Hiroshi. It's the same in D&D. It's the same even in these sort of, like, fairly linear games. It's still like the Bioware games, as you mentioned, that still allow you a degree of wiggle room because it's saying like, we want you to do this gen general thing. However, at the same time, we recognize that you're human beings and you're going to want to have a certain degree of variety and like different approaches to- Well, is that why you, you know. yeah. And is that why you think that these like MMOs and like kind of the constant patch updates or constant content changes like Fortnite, right? Fortnite yeah. is actually a really <laughs> kind of interesting example because it plops you into a world that is a say battle royale yeah. and the purpose of, is to shoot people but i was playing the other day and i literally just fished for guns and then was like <laughs> kind of like the meat decoy of my team yeah. 
right? Where I was like, oh, look, I'm shooting at you. And then I would like run off and then people would kind of circle around, right? Because I am very good at not getting hit, but I am very bad at shooting. And I think that that's that's actually kind of interesting to me when you to hear you say like you can kind of create it out of thin air is that do you feel like it's harder to design games when you like if you don't have that very specific person in mind right with Takeshi and Hiroshi or in some ways does that just mean that if there is a very specific manner of play right or you have that specific user then do you bite yourself in the foot because you don't have enough options later down the line? Well, we're, we're on a continuum again. So there's, there's on, so on this end of the continuum, there's like, it's literally a person, you know, in your life and you, like you, you understand them and you have this like intimate relationship with them. And then over here, you're just completely detached. You're making just, you're making Tetris where like really the person is kind of irrelevant and it's just, here are game mechanics. It is a puzzle system in real time. That's it. But the thing is, like, that's a continue. So there are there are there are middle points along that way, and in many ways, um, MMOs are a good example of of one of the middle points where there is a a world that is created, and within that world, like especially when it comes to like character progression and rating and so forth, there are things that the developers are far more focused on. Nevertheless, there are still things that people do within those worlds that have nothing to do with what the developers want them to do. I mean, that's why you get, especially in MMOs, you get like gambling systems or, or like, you know, you can go to a concert in, in Final Fantasy 14, or you can have people doing dead rolls in um, World of Warcraft, or you can have people who are like doing like, I, I remember there was this one time when there were, so in um, Dark Age of Camelot, which is a very PVP focused game, there were pacifists in Dark Age of Camelot. <laughs> and so like, the game I feel like do you, that. yeah, and I do feel like if that, if you have that strong world narrative, right? Like bringing it back to D and D, like I'm curious why you threw your players into this kind of generic fuzzy world, right? Because they were new and you wanted them yeah. to kind of know the mechanics. But were you actually creating a mechanics-driven experience? Because now you're on that Tetris spectrum where they're like, well, you can't do those things. Versus you see these areas where they have a huge world. And now you're talking about like like the MMOs where they start to be freer. Would your players have been freer if you had said, here's this world with like 50 cities, like which one do you go to? Well, I think what I created was more like an iterative process. Because the thing is, the reason why, because the thing is, it's starting to cohere now. Okay. Like, it was only initially, it's not like permanently fuzzy. It's only fuzzy in those initial stages precisely because... I need to see how these players are going to play. Like what kinds of things are they likely to do? And I don't want to like close too much of that off. Like, in other words, it's sandboxy initially precisely because like, okay, like what are they going to do when put in like any old environment? Okay. Now I have a better sense of this and now I can do this. So it's one of the reasons why I created a tag along character for them. Also because, because there are aspects of the game that they were just completely unaware of and that, you don't really experience because the thing is unless yeah, somebody unless, some, unless somebody put unless a dungeon master puts it in front of you you don't necessarily have it you know, like an experience of it there aren't clear tutorials for right like, uh, playing a pre-written campaign which i don't like to do just personally. i also don't like pre-written campaigns actually yeah. this has been really insightful because i think that i had a very bad dm experience not very bad that's that's a that's actually a bad moniker um i had a very like weird DM experience. It wasn't really fun. It was just unfun. There we go. And it was because we were playing the same characters where we switched GMs. 
because we were like a friend group and one of our friends wanted to run like a very specific kind of like story. But then it turned out that instead of running that specific story, all our characters were used to just being put into like a kind of a larger world and then playing. So this has been really insightful because I think that now by running like a campaign, you do kind of see that the games that are becoming more and more um, sandboxy at the beginning and like tailoring that experience based on your play, you see a lot more of games like that, especially Fortnite being like the biggest example, right? Is that, yeah, you plopped into a world, but go fish, go hunt for wild boars now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, or like, find, or go find construction materials, go find construction materials, <laughs> yeah, right. Or, yeah. or go do other things. And so yeah. I think that's been awesome. Cause it's kind of interesting to see how Dungeons and Dragons is actually right. You can kind of actually see elements to it in a game like Fortnite. Okay. So uh, we went a little bit longer today because Lauren and I are going to be going on hiatus for about a month. We need to recharge our batteries. I also need to get caught up on my teaching stuff, which I'm sort of perennially behind on. Um, but Lauren, while we're gone, where can people go to yell at us on social media? Please yell at us on social media at uh, YouTube. We are Furudashi Pod and also on Twitter at, at Furudashi Pod. You can yell at me specifically by at the Lauren Ash. That's Lauren with a Y. Or you can yell at Nicholas a with my, little yeah, bit with my, more with, indirectly yeah, through yeah. at Furudashi Pod. Well, also my, right? um, my, my That's personal, what I would yeah. say. You can get, I'll give my What's your personal one? one? Go ahead no, and spell it. At U-A-H-S-E-N-A-A at Wasana. It's a middle Egyptian word I made up. It's very cool. Honestly, if you can figure out how to be like Noctis to St. Claire Lunia, <laughs> like the 13th, I think people can learn how to say Uwania. Is that what it was? Wasana. So Wasana. Wasana. Okay. If you can learn how to say Final Fantasy names, you can learn how to say Uwasana. Oh, that, that's right? true. Yeah. So just um, saying. Yeah. <laughs> so we will we will be back sometime either at the end of April or the beginning of May with another thrilling episode of the Footy Dush podcast. But until then, we want you all to stay safe, stay healthy, and, and stay tuned on our social media. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Bye.